Shalom and welcome to this week's lecture and uh, the title is you want it darker understanding God's answer to Moses and yes the uh, the title you want it darker comes from the lyrics of one of the last songs that uh, Leonard Cohen of blessed memory um, wrote um, as always I'm gonna start by pasting in the um, in the comments, the ooh, I'm gonna paste in the comments the um, uh, the link to. Hold on one second. Let me try one more time. There we go. The the link oh, to the um, to the lecture. If you want to print it up and read and follow along. Um, I always write longhand notes so that people can, uh, you know, if they want, they can just go ahead and read it. So I just post it in the comments. Anyway, so um, let's get going. We always start. We start with the with the modern day issue. Everything that's taught in the in the world of Jewish mysticism, especially Chabad Hasidis, is all focused on practical life. Um, how can I make my life, my practical life, more spiritual? And uh, how can I become a better person through this? So what is the modern-day issue of this lecture? So let me begin by telling you about Thomas Fuller. Thomas Fuller was an English theologian in the year 1650. In his work titled A Pisgah, Site of Palestine and the Confines Thereof, it's a book of his descriptive geography of the Holy Land, he coined the phrase, it's always darkest before dawn. The phrase seems to have become an accepted universal truth. Now, what is the practical idea behind this uh, quote? So the idea behind this is related to the literal meaning, meaning of dawn. Dawn begins when the first light begins to show over the horizon from the sunrise. Therefore, there is the least light before dawn begins because there is no sunlight at that point. That is also the longest point since last seeing light. So that's what it simply means, literally means. And what obviously is telling us is, you know, don't give up, it's uh, darkest, but it's only darkest because it's right before the dawn. Now, one beautiful aspect of the millennials to be learned from them is their belief in their entitlement of always questioning every previously accepted truth with the question, says who? And that, that's something to be learned from them. Now, I would suggest that the answer to this question concerning it being darkest before dawn, I would suggest that the who that says this is God. And God says it to Moses in this week's Torah portion. Right before the Jewish people begin their redemption from Egypt, it gets worse. Pharaoh doubles their load and it really, really gets bad. So the modern-day issue of this lecture is to understand the universal truth, its reason, and what we are to do when it gets darkest. This lecture, I always tell you where I based my lecture if you want to go look at the original. This lecture is based primarily on a teaching, a mimer, a mystical teaching of the Rebbe Blessed Memory, delivered on this Shabbos in 1969, exploring God's answer to Moses. And let me quote you exactly what the answer 
is. It's in the opening two verses. Um, uh, but Moses asked to God, O Lord, why have you harmed this people? Why have you sent me? Since I have come to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has harmed this people, and you have not saved your people. That's how last week's Torah portion ends with Moses questioning God. And then it starts with, it ends with one verse, the beginning of God's answer. But the primary answer is the beginning of this week's Torah portion. The Rebbe is exploring what exactly did God answer Moses. On the surface, we don't see how he answered Moses, why it got worse. Okay, introduction. So, here's an introduction. The verses in Genesis that count the six days of creation... So each day ends with Vayihi Erev, Vayihi Boker, and it was the evening and it was the morning of day one, day two, day three, day four, whichever it was. Now always, always does it say evening before morning. That's the way it works. And that's why according to Jewish law, the day begins, the new day begins at sunset. It's not like the Gregorian calendar which begins at midnight. It begins at sunset. So, therefore, we always have the day, the evening before the morning. That's why, for example, um, uh, and by the way, just to be precise, the real time is somewhere in between sunset and nightfall. We don't know exactly when, and therefore, when necessary, we start the day at sunrise and end it at nightfall. For example, the Holy Shabbat day. We start Friday at sunrise. It doesn't end until Saturday at nightfall. Where does this all begin that we start with the night before the day? It all begins in Genesis. And it was the evening and it was the morning. Evening before morning. Now, with that being understood, I want to share with you a very interesting story in the Talmud. I'm just taking one piece of the story. And it's in the Talmud and Tractic Shabbat, and I'm going to read to you. And now, Rabbi Zera found Rabbi Yehuda, two rabbis, Rabbi Zera and Rabbi Yehuda, who were standing at the entrance of his father-in-law's house. Rabbi Yehuda was standing at the entrance of his father-in-law's house, and Rabbi Zera observed that he was in an especially cheerful mood. And Rabbi Zera understood that were he to ask Rabbi Yehuda about anything in the entire world, he would tell him the answer. He therefore posed to him questions on a variety of topics unrelated to halakha, Jewish law. And he goes on to say the questions. I'm just going to share with you the first question that Rav Zera asked Rav Yehuda. Why do goats walk in front of the flock and then ooze follow? He said to him, Rav Yehuda answered him, why? It is just as it was in the creation of the world which at first was dark and then light followed. Therefore, the explanation here is that goats, which are generally which are generally typically black, preceded ewes, which are typically white. Interesting. <laughs> so this notion of dark before light is actually manifested in the physical things that happen. And now our sages connect this teaching of the Talmud with the opening of our Torah portion. Let us understand how the portion begins. And in order to understand, let us first go back to how last week's Torah portion ends. 
So let me give it to you in the cliff notes. Very simple. So Moses at the burning bush at Mount Sinai, and he's arguing with God for seven days. He's arguing with God. God tells him, go. And he says, who am I to go? Please send the one you always send. And this argument goes on. After seven days, Moses agrees. And God agrees that Aaron would be the speaker. And he would be the one that would tell Aaron what to say. And they head to Egypt. And they come to Pharaoh in the palace of Pharaoh. And they go ahead and they do the signs the miraculous signs that God said, and they tell Pharaoh, let my people go. The God of the Hebrews said, let my people go. Now, Pharaoh, in response, not only doesn't he let the people go, he actually doubles their workload. He makes it much worse for them. He says that until now, we supplied you with the straw from which to make the mortar and the bricks, and then you only had to go ahead and do the bricks. Now, from here on, you're going to go ahead and have to collect your own straw and still not be freed of any of the quota that you had to do prior. And when they cry out to him, he says, why? Why are you doing this to us? And he answers, you guys have too much time on your hand and you're thinking of being freed from Egypt, so I'll fill up your time. And the Jewish people go ahead, they see Moses and Aaron, and they say, let God judge you for what you've done. You've made it worse for us in the eyes of Pharaoh. And then Moses walks out of, of Pharaoh's office, Pharaoh's palace, and then he goes ahead and he talks to God. And he says to God, like I quoted to you before, why have you sent me? Why have you done harm to these people? It got worse for them and saved them. You did not save them. And then last week, God goes ahead and says to him that now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a mighty hand, he will send them out. And with a mighty hand, he will drive them out of his land. And then this week, the portion begins with the continuation of what God said. And what does God continue saying? I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob with the name Almighty God, Kel Shakai in Hebrew, but with my ineffable tetragrammaton name, the yud heh vav -Hey, I did not become known to them. Okay, good. But what's the answer to the question? Why did it have to get worse? Moses asked a specific question. He didn't ask why if God is planning to ever save them. He's asking, why did it get worse? Why did you harm them? Now, the answer that God is telling to Moses is, let's quote the Talmud that I just quoted to you. It is just as it was in the creation of the world, which at first it was dark and then light followed. In other words, it's always darkest before dawn. Thus, it got darker because dawn is about to happen. Question, why? And the answer is because the Torah universal truth, it's not just a universal truth, it's a Torah universal truth that it's always darkest before dawn. What are we here to understand is, what is the reason and the purpose behind this Torah universal truth? Okay, God, so you're saying that according to the Torah, it always has to get darker before dawn. It's the darkest before dawn. Why? Why did God create the darkness of evening before God created the light of day? So we know a fact, that's what happened. But why? That's the question we're going to ask. Why? However, let us make clear 
what is the greater dawn that God is telling to Moses? So I'm suggesting to you, based on the teachings, that God is telling Moses it's getting darker because it's darkest before dawn. There's going to be a great dawn, and thus it's getting darker. What is this great unprecedented dawn of light that God is telling Moses about? So to understand that, we're going to understand a little bit about the names of God. God tells Moses about a new revelation of the redemption of Egypt is to bring about. I appear to Avram, to Isaac, and to Jacob with the name Almighty God, Kel Shakai, but with my ineffable tetragrammaton, name Yud Vavke, I did not become known to them. So let, let, you're going to hear the word ineffable tetragrammaton a lot. Let's de decipher it. Ineffable means the unspeakable, unpronounceable. Tetragrammaton literally means the four-letter name, the greatest name of God. Sometimes I see it spelled in English for no, no specific reason, Y-W-H-W. But in truth, I'm sorry, Y-H-W-H. But um, in truth, there is no way to pronounce it. We pronounce it as A-D-O-N-A-I when we do our prayers or our blessings, but obviously that's not the pronunciation. Yud, hey, vav, hey, does not spell out A-D-O-N-A-I. But we call it the ineffable tetragrammaton. Now that we're going to soon see is the greatest name of God of all the holy names, the seven names, the ten names, however you look at it. Now, God is telling Moses that I never revealed this ineffable tetragrammaton name to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I always revealed to them only with the name Kel Shakai. And obviously I'm pronouncing it wrong. You always pronounce the names of God's wrong when you're just talking, um, unless you're actually using them in a prayer. So the word Kel is actually spelled, pronounced A-I-L, and the word Shakai is actually S-H-A-D-D-A-I. Now, now that we know this, Let's talk about this. What's going on here? So I want to take you back to what happened at the burning bush. At the burning bush, when God first introduces himself to Moses and tells Moses what, tells Moses what the mission is, this is what he says to him. When you take the people out of Egypt, you, shall wor you will worship God on this mountain. So the burning bush was on Mount Sinai, and God is telling Moses that the reason I'm taking the Jews out of Egypt is because I'm going to bring them to Mount Sinai, where I'm going to give them the Ten Commandments, and with the Ten Commandments, the entire Torah, the 613 commandments. Now, what are the opening words of the first of the Ten Commandments? Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am God, uses the ineffable tetragrammaton name, your God. So therefore, what's going to be revealed at Mount Sinai is going to be the first time the revelation of the ineffable tetragrammaton to the Jewish people. Thus, there's going to be a greater dawn. Thus, pre the greater dawn, there had to be a deeper darkness. And thus, it got worse for the Jewish people just before the redemption of Egypt began. Now, now that we understand this, Let's understand what God is telling Moses. God is telling Moses that prior to this moment, when God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there was never the revelation of the ineffable tetragrammaton. We'll soon see what that means. There was never that revelation. Rather, the names that were used is the name Kale and Shakai. Now, by the way, the name Shakai you should recognize. It's on your mezuzah, Shin It's on the outside of your mezuzah. It's the name that shows out. And that's why on most mezuzah cases, there's a Shin. 
uh, um, engraved on it because of that name of God, Shin Dalajud. Now, the word Shin Dalajud is actually defined to be from the word die. You may know the word die from your famous Passover song, Dai Dayenu, which means enough, suffice. And the reason why it's called that, Rashi tells us when God uses that name for the first time to, to Abraham, Rashi tells us that what it means is that, and let me actually quote it to you, I am he whose godliness suffices for every creature. Now, what does that mean in the world of Kabbalah and Hasidus? That means that there's the finite light which suffices that which each creature needs to be sustained with. Thus, the name Kel Shakai refers to the finite light of God. Now, the ineffable tetragrammaton, the Yudke Vovke, not only is it the infinite light, but it actually is the essence of light when we talk about the names of God. So when we talk about God's light, there's the finite light, there's the infinite light, they're both the expressions of the light, and then there's the essence of the light. Now, the ineffable tetragrammaton is actually refers to the essence of the light of God. And thus, that is an unprecedented revelation that's going to be brought to us at Mount Sinai through the Ten Commandments. God places not only his finite light, not only his infinite light in the Torah, he places the essence of his light in the Torah. And thus, because this is an unprecedented revelation, therefore it is always darkest before dawn. This is an unprecedented dawn. There's going to be an unprecedented darkness before this dawn. And thus it gets so much darker for the Jewish people in Egypt the first time Moses comes to Pharaoh. Now, as the millennials would ask, says who? In other words, why God? Why does it have to be so that it has to get so unbearably darker before it becomes so greatly lighter? And now let us start the lecture. As you know, my lectures always be after the, after the modern day issue and then the introduction, I'm sorry about that, after the modern day issue, then comes a list of which mystical concepts we're going to talk about before we wrap it back up with the practical answer the questions and give us a modern day lesson. So today I'm going to just discuss three mystical topics. Number one, the mysticism of darkness before light. Number two, the virtue of the vessels. Number three, the beauty of teshuva. And now let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So, Let's talk about the mysticism of it's always darkest before dawn. Darkness before light. As the Talmud talks about, it was the evening and the morning, and thus you'll always have the dark come before the light. Now, according to mysticism, Kabbalah and Hasidus, the source of light and darkness is that creation was brought about through light and vessels. The vessels is the darkness, and the light obviously is the light. Now, this leads us to a question, because how can one say that darkness came before light when in the mystical process of creation, light came before vessels? First, there was the light, then there was the vessels, and the light shone into the vessels. Now, that was from the very, very first level of creation known in Kabbalah as Mati Veloi Mati, the inclination to revelation, light, and the non-inclination, vessels, darkness. 
all the way through all the emanations. It was always light and then vessels. Therefore, in essence, there should be light before darkness. There should be morning before evening. Not only that, but in Kabbalah, the light, the, I'm sorry, the vessels are created from the thickening, the opaqueness of light. Thus, darkness comes from light. Thus, light is before darkness. Then why are we saying that there was the evening and the morning, which is a reflection that above is the darkness before light, which is why it's that way in our world too? That is the question. Now, to understand the answer, Chabad Hasidus gives a metaphor. What is that metaphor? Let me share it with you briefly. So the teacher wants to teach the student. So the teacher has to take his thoughts, that thought that he wants to teach to the student, and he has to transmit it to the student. However, what's the one thing every teacher has to do before he begins his preparation of the class? He has to envision the capacity of his student. The teacher may prepare a class that is indigestible to the student. It's above the student's head. Or maybe he'll make it too simple and the student will feel bored. He's got to know the capacity of his student's intellect and then begin to process the class. So in essence, the student is the vessel, the teaching is the light, and what we just said is that before the teacher actually prepares the light, the teacher has to first have a clear vision of the vessel. And the reason for this is that the entire purpose of the light of the teaching is that it be received by the vessel. Thus, in essence, ultimately, it is the vessel that comes before the light. And the light is made to suit the vessel. Thus, this is the meaning, according to the metaphor, of why there is the darkness before the light. It was evening and it was morning. Now, what that would mean in a spiritual sense, in the creation of the world, there is always the focus is on the vessel. The focus and the primary purpose of creation is not about the spirituality, it's about the physicality. It's not about the light. It's about the vessel receiving the light. And thus, therefore, we are taught that in Kabbalah, it is always about the darkness before the light, meaning that it is the precedence, the priority, the preciousness of the vessel is primary. And that's why the soul comes down into the body. Because it is the body that the soul has to deal with. That is the primary focus. It isn't the spirituality which is the main thing. It is the physicality which is the main thing. It isn't the light. It's the vessel. It's that the vessel should receive the light. Now, I want to just take this one moment and one step deeper. Because in essence, the fact the way it is spiritually by God is even greater than the way it is by the teacher and the student. Why? Because the teacher has no choice. The student already exists. Thus, the teacher has no choice but to have his teaching, the light, be suited to the student, the vessel. How is it by God? We spoke about how by God, in spirituality, the light comes before the vessel, 
And therefore, ultimately, God could have decided to create the light and then suit the vessel to the light. But rather, what we're hearing is, it was evening, it was morning, meaning that the first thing that there was, was, so to speak, engraved within God's mind, the vessel, the physical. And then God suited the spiritual, the light, to the physical, to the vessel. Thus, we see that by the teacher, it's just that way because he has no choice. But rather, by God, it was by choice. It is truly so that within the essence of God, the vessel takes precedence over the light. The physical takes precedence over the spiritual, and it is done so by choice because God chose to first envision the vessel and then to have the light suited to the vessel and not vice versa. Now, that we understand this, we understand that the, I'm sorry, now we understand that it gives us the important and insight to existence. It's all about, the primary focus is all about the physical, the action, not the spiritual, the feeling. Everything is focused on to get into the physical. Feelings are valued as far as they can propel the action. The soul is as powerful as it can impact itself upon the body. Because the body is the precedence of it all. The body is the focus of it all. The vessel is what's precious. More precious than the light. Now, to talk about this, I want to talk about a very practical question. God told Moses about the ineffable tetragrammaton that to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I did not reveal my ineffable tetragrammaton. I revealed my lower finite name of Kel Shakai. Right? And without looking, we would just say, okay, something new. Little question. Turn back to Genesis, where God talks to Abraham. Just an example. Twice, I'll show you where God uses the ineffable tetragrammaton to Abraham. The first time is when he's going to command Abraham about the circumcision. The verse, and, I, and I'll tell you exactly, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. And Avram, that's before his name became Abraham. And Avram was 99 years old, and God, ineffable tetragrammaton, appeared to him. Then again, one chapter later, when God visits him, when he's recovering from his circumcision, as he's sitting by the door of his tent, at exactly one chapter later, chapter 18, verse 1, and God, ineffable tetragrammaton, appeared to him. And then there's a story with the three angels. So why is God saying, I did not use my ineffable tetragrammaton, when clearly he did? To understand this, we're going to have to go to a verse in Exodus when God reveals to Moses the 13 printed, the thirteen attributes of mercy. And I'm going to read to you the verse. Ineffable tetragrammaton, ineffable tetragrammaton, benevolent God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. And it goes on for the rest of the 13. It starts with double, ineffable tetragrammaton, ineffable tetragrammaton. 
and make life easier, I'll just use the word Adnai. I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, A-D-O-N-A-I. Or actually, let me just use it the way it's taught in Kabbalah and Hasidis. The word that's used is Havaya. Havaya is the way we mispronounce the ineffable tetragrammaton in the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidis. So it begins with Havaya, Havaya, and there is a separation in between those two words. Havaya, separation, Havaya. From here we learn out that there are two ineffable tetragrammatons. There's the higher Havaya and there's the lower Havaya and there's a separation in between. Now, what we know here is that, and, and I'm going to just, uh, just share this with you, that in Kabbalah and in Chabad Hasidus especially, it gives beautiful, in-depth, clear, practical, crystal clear explanations about what the higher Havaya is and what the lower Havaya is. And in places it explains that the higher Havaya is related to the lights, uh, the light, and the lower Havaya is related to the vessels. And what I want to just focus on here is the fact that in between the lower Havaya and the higher Havaya, there is a separation, which is a darkness, a contraction, an absolute contraction, an absolute concealment of total darkness. Thus, we see that going from the lower Havaya to the higher Havaya, there will be the darkness. And that's why what God is telling Moses is that the forefathers had the lower Havaya while I'm about to reveal the higher Avaya. And in between, there has to be the darkness that comes before the dawn. And by the way, even taking it a higher level, not only in between the two Havayas is there the darkness, that means the darkness before the higher Avaya, but even within each Havaya itself, the lower and the higher, I want to take you to a verse in Psalms chapter 18. And it says over there as follows. For a sun and a shield is the Lord God. Now, what I want to share with you is that in Kabbalah that explains that the name Elohim, the lower name, is a shield, a vessel, a darkness that covers the infinite light of the ineffable tetragrammaton, the Havaya. Thus, even the lower Havaya has the darkness that circles it and you'll always experience the darkness before the light. And therefore, now to just understand what we're saying here is that in order to go from the Elohim concealment of Egypt, we're going to go to the higher Havaya. And therefore, God's telling Moses, before I can bring you to an unprecedented higher Havaya of the Ten Commandments, the unprecedented relationship and revelation of my essence light, you're going to have to first go through the Elohim. You're going to have to first go through the darkness of Egypt. Now, let us understand, through understanding this, let us now understand what we spoke about before. We spoke about before that the goal of the light is that it be revealed and received by the student. Now, I also share then that not only is the focus of the light only to be the, for the sake of being received by the student, the vessel, I also mentioned that the job of the light is to reveal the preciousness of the vessel. 
Thus, not only the light's job is to be received by the vessel, but the light's job is to make it known that the preciousness, the precedence of it all, the focus of it all is in the vessel. Now, therefore, I want to share with you an interesting teaching. Why is the darkness, why is the vessel, why is the physical more precious than the spiritual? Why so? And I'm going to give you the Kabbalistic answer to it. And let me take you to a verse. The verse says, He made darkness his hiding place about him as his booth. God, the essence, does not hide in light. It hides in darkness. Thus, that is even deeper than light which means that the source of light within the essence of God is lower than the source of darkness within the essence of God. The source of light is the revelation within the essence of God, the power of expression, of revelation, light. While darkness is the essence of the essence of God within His essence itself. And thus, ultimately, the deepest connection you can have with God is not through the light that He gives you, but through the darkness. The deepest connection you can have with God is not through your soul, through your spiritual meditation, but through your body and the physical observance of God's commandness and goodness and kindness to God's creatures. Why so? Because within the essence of God itself, the depth of the essence lies within the physical. The body has a higher source within God than the soul. As amazing as that sounds, so it is. So much so, by the way, that in the resurrection, the soul will actually receive its sustenance from the body and not vice versa. Today, the body lives off the life, the spirituality of the soul. When Mashiach comes and there'll be the ultimate revelation, it's going to be the opposite. Why? Because when you talk about the essence of it all, the essence of it all is the darkness. The essence of it all is the vessel. The essence of it all is the physical. And thus the entire focus of this world is to deal, to struggle with, to transform the physical. It's not about abnegation. It's not about abstinence. It's about engaging. It's about transforming. Because the reason the soul came down here is not to ignore the body. It's rather to engage with the body. Because the essence lies in the vessel, not in the light. With this, we'll now understand a teaching of our sages and ethics of our fathers. And I want to quote to you this saying, this teaching. It's in chapter 4, teaching number 17. A single moment of repentance and good deeds in this world is greater than all of the world to come. Question. How could it be that the service is greater than the reward? We invest to make more, not less. You're telling me that the work is greater than the reward. One hour of teshuva, repentance, and good deeds, which is the work, 
is greater than all of the world to come. Paradise, heaven, which is the reward. How can that be? Question number two, why does it say repentance and good deeds? And why does it say repentance before good deeds? As if repentance is a necessary prerequisite to good deeds. And now the answer is that in our life and our service to God, it is as well first darkness and then light. And what do I mean for that? I mean by that, that the soul as it is in heaven is in a total state of bliss and light. It is basking in its spirit, excuse me, in its spirituality, in its love and awe for God. When the, when the soul is removed from heaven and comes and descends down into this body, it experiences darkness and distance and separation from God. And thus our life and service begins with darkness, not with light. And so too it is that we need to begin our service from the body's perspective. And what does that mean on a mystical level? What it means is that our very focus on this distance, separation, and darkness is what gives birth to the yearning, the unprecedented yearning of the soul towards God. For example, the water of the river has a current. When you build a dam, the dam blocks the current. So what's happening is that the current is building, it's building, it's building, it's building until the current becomes so powerful, it breaks through the dam. And now it's traveling with an unprecedented power of current. So too it is. The soul has its natural current flowing towards God. However, when the dam, the body, the physical, the separation, the distance, the darkness stops the flow, the soul keeps on building and building and building and building until it becomes such a powerful current of yearning that it breaks through the dam. And all of a sudden, it's with an unprecedented current of flow of love and awe to God. All because of the darkness. And in essence, this is what Teshuva is all about. Teshuva is not just a repentance for actual sin. Teshuva means Toshuv, return to God. Teshuva is the outcome of darkness and distance. When you feel separated, you're yearning to return. As they say, distance makes the heart grow fonder. And therefore, it is the darkness that creates the teshuva, and the teshuva brings an unprecedented light to all good deeds. Because the teshuva does not negate the darkness, it rather delves into the darkness, and from there it finds its supercurrent of yearning for God. And thus, the Mishnah says, nicer is one moment of teshuva and good deeds in the darkness, which as we mentioned earlier, is in the ultimate source, the highest source of the essence of God, than all of the spirituality and the light, which is in paradise. And that's why it actually is taught that the ultimate reward is not paradise. 
And the proof is that Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, which were between two to 3,000 years more, 3,000 to 4,000 years already in paradise, they will have a resurrection when Mashiach comes. Which means that the ultimate reward is not spiritual soul in heaven, but the ultimate reward is the physical, the body, when Mashiach comes with the resurrection. And that's why there is the resurrection. Because the ultimate goal is not death where the soul leaves the body. The ultimate goal is when the soul comes back to the body and the body becomes the ultimate transparency to the essence, darkness of God. Pre any revelation, form and shape. And thus we now understand what God is telling Moses. It's all about the darkness, the unprecedented light has to have a prerequisite, prerequisite of unprecedented darkness. And ultimately, it's all about the darkness. For in the darkness lies the greatest translight light that there is. The light that goes beyond light. As we quoted the verse from the book of Psalms. God hides in the darkness. And now, in closing. In closing, we now understand... That were the purpose to be only about the light, then we wouldn't need it to be darkest before dawn. We can just have the light dominate and crush darkness as is. Doesn't have to get darker. However, it isn't all about the light. Rather, it ultimately is all about the darkness. And as such, we need to feel the fullest force of the darkness and to have the dawn the light focus on bringing forth the ultimate preciousness and greatness of the darkness in the darkness being where the truest essence of god hides and to bring this forth and reveal this essence thus we need to take it to the fullest throttle of darkness and there to find the ultimate essence of god what does this tell us in our practical modern day life? Life isn't about the light and the goodness that God gives us in our lives. Life is all about what we do with the darkness that God gives us in life. Why? Because that is where the essence of God, the essence of our soul, and the essence of our relationship with God lies. Thus, what the saying of it's always darkness before dawn tells us on a secular level is to hold on and not to give up when it gets really dark and difficult for dawn is imminently coming. Far greater than this secular teaching is what it tells us on a Torah level. The Torah tells us that it isn't just about holding on through the darkness, waiting for dawn. Greater than this, it is about finding the essence of who we are within the darkness. And from there comes the greatest of all dawns. Thank you.